look at them. Nick's got my back. Um, I'm excited for you guys to finally have an opportunity to hear me speak because it's been almost a year that we've been here and I haven't had this chance. Um, so it's really cool to me to, to be opened up to this. Um, it's terrifying too. You guys are intimidating, but that's besides the point. I wanted to start with a, a story. Um, I, I'm an entomology nerd. I guess this isn't really a story. I love learning about like the history of words and stuff. Um, so in, in 1896, in the cities of, city of Athens, the world came together for the first time in over a millennia to celebrate a sportings event together. It was the Olympics, right? The first modern Olympics happened there. About 30 years later, in 1928, in Amsterdam, for the first time, they lit the Olympic bowl. You know, the flame that burned throughout the event. And that was a pretty cool thing, right? Eight years later, 1936, in the city of Berlin, they started a new tradition. The tradition was this. In Athens, they would light a fire, and they would dip into that fire a torch. And then, by hand, they would deliver the torch all the way to the place where the Olympics is being held. I'm sure you guys have heard of this before. It's, it's the Olympic torch rally, relay. My word, right words. And I tell you this because I think it's really cool that from this phrase, in the past hundred years, a very common thing for us has been the phrase passing the torch. That started with the Olympics where, where they, <laughs> they realized that it was too much for one person, I guess. And it's a long way to walk. But man, you would do what you could and then you would, you would pass that torch on. And the next person would take it in Christianity, we have a similar term to this. We have what we call discipleship. And discipleship is, is this idea of passing from one generation to the next, but what is a disciple? So some people, if you, if you ask that, right, they would lean towards some form of, of learning, right? In their day, you didn't subscribe to such and such a school. You subscribed to such and such a teacher, and you became their disciple, but to put it as just academics cuts it short. A lot of theologians have described it as following, and I think today that term has kind of lost its meaning because it's really easy to hop on Instagram and follow someone. It's easy to follow on TikTok. It's easy to get on whatever social media platform you happen to choose today and follow a plethora of people. And so follow has come to mean something so simple as wanting to associate with them. But see, what Jesus called us to was something deeper. He said in, in Luke 14, 27, that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after him cannot be his disciple. Jesus didn't ask for a one-click subscribe. He asked them to follow only him. That's how he defined disciples. And that term carried into the book of Acts. You didn't find the term Christian thrown about in Acts until much later. Instead, we had followers of the way. There were these people who were known for following Jesus, and they were marked as disciples. And so it was a term that referred to all Christians. Everyone was expected to be a disciple. Recently, we've abandoned that term more for the term Christian. Yet the idea of discipleship is foundational to the church. So much so that the last recorded command in Matthew focused on making disciples. 
This is the passage I want to focus on with you guys today. Matthew chapter 28. We're starting in verse 16. The core of it is 18 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. God, as we dive into this passage, help me to step out of the way. Fill me with the words that that you would have us hear. Help us to leave change because that's not something we can do on our own. God, open our eyes to what this passage has to say. Pray this in your name. Amen. I am not much of one for outlines and notes because my brain looks more like a splattergram than... So bear with me. I'm trying... I want to talk about two things with you today. First of all, I want to talk about our need to disciple. First of all, you're going to see in this passage the plan that Christ commanded. Right? And it's simple, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, I'm sure some of you have probably even heard what I'm about to say, so bear with me. This phrase, go, is, is a participle. I'm not an English major. If I get that wrong, don't hate me. And it really probably better would mean as you go. Right? And so Jesus speaking to his disciples said, as you go, make disciples. Wherever you're going, whatever part of life you're in, as you go, make disciples. And a lot of people like to leave it there. But Jesus was actually doing something really cool with these words. I know, I'm a nerd. Because up until this point, Matthew was largely written to a Jewish audience. He was writing to a nation that had a special privilege of being God's chosen people. And they looked for the kingdom of God to come to Israel. And here he says, go. And that's not just like, listen, as you go amongst your Jewish brothers, I want you to make disciples. Men who are much smarter than me have looked at these words and said, listen, when you have a participle and it's attached to an imperative... When you take this word as you go and you attach it to make disciples, you make the go a command as well. Listen, it cannot stay in Israel anymore, is what Jesus says. You are going to go. In fact, other passages of Scripture say you're going to take it to the uttermost edges of the world. So go, and as you do, make disciples. Go expecting to make disciples into whatever area you're going to be carried. Second of all, I want to look at the people targeted because I feel like that's important, right? Because if he gives a command and he says you're going to make disciples, the next big question is who needs to be a disciple? Right? And Christ uses this word, all nations. And again, to the Jews of that day who were receiving this message, it probably stung a little bit. 
And I think sometimes to America, this should sting a little bit. Because we get a mindset that we are now God's chosen people here. I hope that's not you. If it is, God wants that to go to everyone. So who is everyone? Right? That's the big question. Not really. That's the obvious question, right? Obvious answer. Because if I say it should go to everyone, then that means that the people next to you are part of everyone. That means the people behind you are part of everyone. That means the people outside the doors of this church are part of everyone. I want to point out two fallacies that we fall into real fast. Not really. Probably this is going to be the biggest part. Sorry. Because this is where it hits me at home. This is, this is where it hits my heart. I think sometimes we run into this issue of being like, oh, everyone around me is fine. They're fine. They've got it together. Look at how nicely they're dressed. I asked them how they're doing today, and they said, good. They must be fine. I grew up as a pastor's kid. And if you know anything about the phrase pastor's kids, you know that I have some negative connotation on that. Because we're the troublemakers. (laughs) Growing up, I don't think I ever had anyone disciple me. And I mean, even my parents. Like, never had anyone who was really invested in, in my life as a Christian. And I was a pastor's kid. And I think what happened was, was my dad was a pastor on Sunday, and then he would come home, and sometimes life just kind of got in the rut, and we would move through it, right? And everyone else would look at us and be like, well, they sit well during church. Yeah, yeah, sit still. I'm good at that. Um, they, they dress well. They behave. They're respectful. They know the answers. They must have it together. And so I was left in a position of people kind of glossing over me. And guys, it happens all the time around us. It happens in the pews that we're sitting in. It happens with the families that are in here. And I don't say anything, I don't mean anything about those families. I don't mean to say that Rachel and I aren't doing a good job with our kids. I'll I'll put us as the targets. Sorry, I called your name from the pulpit. I'm not supposed to do that. I don't mean that we're failing. But nothing would bring me greater honor as to when my kids get old enough to start having those relationships that people take them aside and say, how can we pour into your life? There is a kid, and I'm old enough to say that now, in my college after I graduated. I'm getting there. Um, who grew up in a Christian home. He, he grew up with Christian parents. He, he went to church. He came to Bible college. He was in the same degree that I had already graduated from. So, like, if anyone has it together, it's, it's this kid, right? We'll call him Alex. Alex has got it together. He's going on the right path, right? I made it a point to disciple Alex because I knew kind of the experience that I had had of being just left by the wayside. And we would talk about theology, and we would dive deep into theology and what it means and and what passages actually are talking about and how they apply to what we believe and how we take what we believe and apply it to our life. Like, what's the point of talking about sin if I don't understand how it works in my daily life? So Alex and I had lots of discussions, things about girls and... He's in college. Anyways. Things about theology, things about everyday life because it was necessary. 
Paul wrote some letters I'm going to talk about later. But just real quickly to Timothy. My beloved child, and Paul was not the father of Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy grew up in a Christian home. Timothy was handed a faith by his parents. And I say that kind of loosely because we can't just... Anyways. But Paul still took the time to call him his son and pour into his life. Don't forget the kids that look like they're doing well. Don't forget the friends that look like they're doing well. Don't forget the young adults. Don't forget the old adults. Don't write people off just because you think they're okay. Second of all, I want to look at the ones that we believe are totally lost. Because I think those happen in life too. There's another person when we were living in West Virginia, we're going to call him Kevin. And Kevin grew up in an abusive home, in a home where alcohol was prevalent. Uh, a mother who would smoke and drink and whose health was failing and she cared more about her addiction to those cigarettes than she did about her own health. A dad who could be heard down the block when he was sober. And surprisingly, when Kevin came to youth group, he didn't always behave the best. because he was living in a world of chaos. And so what he showed was chaos. Man, the number of times that I I made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for Kevin because food was not always in his house, the number of times I walked out of youth group to go and follow him down the street because it was safer for the other kids for him to be out there, and so it was easy for me to just go with them. Like, keep an eye, make sure he's safe, and, and invite him back once he calms down. Like, that was the world of Kevin. And there were people in the church who said, not worth my time. Because he's beyond hope. Kevin and I had a much different set of conversations than Alex and I. Kevin and I talked about why we can't punch holes in cinder brick walls, which he actually could, so why do we not punch holes in cinder brick walls. And it was a much more personal, intimate, how do we get the basic truths of the gospel into our life? Luke 5.30 says that the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you have hope for Kevin when he's got anger problems and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This passage almost makes me cry when I read it, um, for twofold reasons. One, because of kids like Kevin, who I've seen rejected by the church. And the second is this, when I was growing up, I would hear this, and I'd be like, wow, that was really mean of Jesus to like push the Pharisees to the side like that, Right? 
Like, I didn't come for you guys. And man, it took me a long time to realize that Jesus was telling them, you're sick too. Jesus didn't come because we can earn our righteousness on our own. He came because we are all sick and in need of a doctor. And it's only when we see that that we can accept it. And so when you have Kevins in your life, don't write them off. Because they need grace just like you do. I think some of the the leaders in our church wrote them off because they were afraid of their track record being hurt. Have you guys ever thought, I mean, of course you haven't, right? No one would ever. But have you ever thought, like, man, like, what if things go really badly and this kid ends up not being what I want him to be? What if I'm associated with that mess forever? Jesus didn't even have a perfect track record, guys. This is why I started in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, and that's it. That's all the farther I need to go on it. Because <laughs> Jesus is famous for his 12, right? If Jesus can bear having Judas in his posse, who not only fails him, but tries to, to betray him and succeeds, is there anyone beyond our reach? Last year, I want to look at the process described. See, because Jesus says make disciples, and then he follows it up with two more verbs. And they're crucial for what he means. He says baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what's up with this baptism thing? Because I, I know we did one a little bit ago, right? We filled up the tank and, boop, and we moved through, right? Well, what's interesting to me about the old church, the first century church, is that they were baptized the day they were saved. Right? Peter preaches this powerful, moving message. And those who received the word were baptized. So what I'm saying is this. When Jesus says, go and baptize, there is evangelism needed. Don't get caught in the trap of, I'm only going to disciple the people in the church. I am more comfortable sharing my Christianity with someone who's already a Christian. Evangelism is a vital part of making disciples for Christ. Because it's only new believers who are called to baptism. Called to confess who they are and who they are following. I'm glad that we at least do baptisms outside, but I've been in churches where it's back in the back of the church and we even have those, you know, the big curtains that draw. And it always hurts a little bit because baptism was meant to be a confession to the believers in the book of Acts. It was sometimes a, a, a way of guaranteeing that your family wouldn't associate with you anymore. Sometimes it was you putting a like a stamp of death on yourself, right? To, to be associated with this Jesus movement that's pulling everyone away from the true gospel of Judaism, man, like, that was a big deal. And for them to go down to the river in front of everyone and say, I am a part of this group, 
marked them in ways that baptism really doesn't necessarily do today. They were called to follow Christ blatantly. And you can't do that if we're only sitting in these pews. Second of all, he says to teach. And I, I want to point out oh, wrong way, that he was not saying, I want you to teach all that I have commanded, right? Important part. But he doesn't stop there. It's not that he said, listen, guys, you better get cramming because there's a test coming. When you show up at those pearly gates, if you don't get at least 90%, not making it in. Sorry. Jesus said, teach them to observe. I asked my daughter what that meant. She said, to look at. I said, great. Do you observe holidays? She said, what? Okay, never mind, sorry. Do you observe holidays? And when you observe holidays, are you just sitting there with your binoculars like, oh man, they cut the turkey. You participate in it, right? You you actively do the holiday when you observe it. And so here Jesus is calling, listen, I'm not telling you to teach them everything that I've ever said. I'm calling you to teach them to apply it to their life. I can stand up here and speak truths from the Bible all day long. That might be an oversight of myself, but. (laughs) But if you go home and you're just like, yeah, I need to love my enemies. But I don't have any enemies. Does that truth hit home to you? Do you observe it? And so what we're called to do is to get out of the pews, to get into the lives of the people around us, because it is a lot more personal when they say, are you loving your brother who hasn't talked to the family in 10 years? Are you loving the new coworker who smells a little off? Are you loving your neighbors who you've told me party too loud and really bother you? When you can put names with your enemies, It hits different, right? And so the point of discipleship was to get into the lives of people and show them how to apply God's truth into the way they are living. And you can't do that at an arm's reach. This isn't simply an introduction to Christianity. But man, it's a way of taking the truth and using it in everyday life. But you've got to be close to someone to help them see how to do that. I had a professor in college who used the term redemptive relationships. And it stuck with me. I love it. It just sounds good. Whether he was talking to a friend of his who was an atheist who didn't know anything about the Bible, or to one of us students who were preparing to go into the ministry, he viewed every relationship as a way to redeem the areas in our life that we had not yet given over to Christ. That is how we need to view the people around us. It's how we need to view our job to disciple. Now, I think probably a lot of you are are nodding your heads and with me on this so far. I want to talk to you about the part I struggle with. 
because you talk to me about discipleship. I'm like, yes, I'm all for it. Let's go and do it. You're like, okay, Andrew, who's discipling you? So we're going to disciple, right? Guys, we also have a need to be discipled. And I think that's hard for a lot of us to hear because we come from a place where being enough is the goal. And we prove that we are enough when we don't need anyone else in our life to help us. Guys, as much as Christ called us to disciple, he called us to be discipled. Because the truth of the gospel would not have reached you if you were not at one point a disciple. So two aspects of it real fast. The direction of discipleship. We're going to come back here to observe all. All. Sorry. The direction is Christ's word, right? The point of what we are doing is to grow to be more like Christ. Are there any areas in your life where you still have sin? It's a rhetorical question, don't answer Lee. I know you're jumping at the gun to raise that hand. Okay, here's my proof, though, that all of us are in this ailment. Paul, the guy who wrote most of the Bible, who, who was a major part of founding the early church, Paul, who we hang on the words of to teach and preach, says this in Philippians 3.12. I love it. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I'm not already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Guys, I understand that you all have sin problems, so do I. Because if Paul didn't have it right, I don't think I'm going to manage. So discipleship for us is still about us being open about the things that we need to grow in. And that is hard to do. But it is necessary if we're going to continue to grow towards Christ. A second thing I want to point out is that sometimes you come into a new area of life. And by that I mean sometimes you have kids for the first time. Sometimes you start a new job. Sometimes you move. Sometimes you're away from family for the first time. Sometimes you lose someone in your life who is close to you. And sometimes you just don't know what to do with all these things. I'd said earlier we were going to talk about First and Second Timothy. I also want to throw in Titus. Not because they're like the all-encompassing, these people were going through all this stuff and can relate to us in really personal ways. I relate to them well because Paul said, hey, you guys are going to be pastors. Good luck. And he sent them off on their way and left them there by themselves to figure it out, right? Now, the books of Timothy and Titus are incredible because whereas other books Paul wrote to the entire church, it was like, these are doctrines and, and I've heard this about your congregation and there's all these things. Instead, in Timothy and Titus, he's like, hey, my son in the faith, hey, buddy, I know these are things you need to know. And it wasn't that he was saying, Timothy, you're doing a terrible job being a Christian. It was that he was saying, look, I know that you're in a spot that you haven't been in before. And man, when you're there, it takes having someone along your side to help you observe all.
And the point of that is this, Ephesians 4, 15, and 16. We'll look at this again next week, but I love it. I love it. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The reason you need discipleship in your life today is because it is how you are drawn in to the body and built up towards Christ. And once you do that, you go and you make disciples so that you can draw them in, so that they are a part of the body, so that they are growing towards Christ. And his whole plan for the entire church was this. People who go and love people and make disciples so that those disciples can go and love people and make disciples. So that those people... And on and on we go. And last, in case you think that this is just a quick thing you're going to do and get out of the way, I want to talk about the duration of this discipleship. Uh, Super encouraging here. You guys are going to reach it tomorrow. Christ ends his command with this, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul also wrote this, Philippians, I find it encouraging too, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that when Christ started salvation in you, he is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So if we're not there yet, guess what? We're still growing. We're still being drawn into Christ. Charles Spurgeon, who is a much better preacher than I am, ended his sermon on Matthew 28 like this. I would close the sermon very practically. The greater part of my congregation at this time consists of persons who have believed in Jesus, who have been baptized, who have been further instructed. You believe that Jesus has all power and that he works through the teaching and preaching of the gospel, and therefore I wish to press you with a home question. How much are you doing as to teach all nations? This charge is committed to you as well as to me. And for this purpose, we are sent into the world, ourselves receivers, that we may be afterwards distributors. So how much have you distributed? And I would add, from whom are you receiving? God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the promises that come with it, that that we are able to make disciples in that you have all the power and that you will continue to be with us until the end. So God, help us to put these truths into practice in our life. Help us to find the people who who need you, and that's, that's all of us. So just open our eyes to the people that you would have us interact with, to make disciples, to preach to. Help us to to approach in a way that is loving so that they're ready to open up and to share where they need to grow towards you. God, give us boldness to, to be open ourselves 
pray this in your name. Amen.